Hello and welcome to the Stephen Purse podcast. My name's Joe and I'm the producer of the podcast. Today's episode marks the end of the first season as we move towards a new topic in these times of social distancing of remote teaching and learning. So for this episode, we're going to cast our minds back to the summer of 2019 and the foundation-wide Festival of Learning. This interactive day of sustainability-focused learning and collaboration is reported on by a team of Stephen Peirce students in an excellent piece of journalism in the style of a radio show. So this podcast has interviews from the students uh, to environmentalists and other students and staff members and captures the heart and themes of the festival. I hope you enjoy. Hi, thanks for listening to this one-off podcast about the Festival of Learning at the Stephen Peirce Foundation. I'm Ash, and I'm going to be hosting this programme. To fit with the sustainability theme, we have interviewed a range of age groups at the festival to find out what sustainability means to them. Sustainability is about living for the future. A situation where you can keep the environment healthy but also sustain the human race, so generate enough resources to keep people alive. But for me, I think a simpler kind of understanding of it is just to think about it is how we work together and how we think about living well in the world possibly about living better in the world, but how we live well in the world. Sustainability means protecting the earth for future generations. Even though we have no connection to them, we, should, we need to respect the earth and respect them. Not overstretching our resources in any way, shape or form. I think sustainability is the idea of not using up finite resources, so ensuring that the things that we use day to day can be replenished. It's important to save the environment because um, of pollution and animals can die from uh, plastic that can harm them. I think it's important to save the um, planet because um, without it we wouldn't be here and we need to look after it so we can have a good life. Now, let's hand over to our student reporters on the ground who have been interviewing, finding out firsthand what's happening across the day. I'm Alicia, I'll be interviewing you today. So what's your name? Maddie. So Maddie, what have you done uh, towards sustainability? Sure, so my name is Maddie. I'm a university student at Cambridge in the Department of Land Economy. I study environmental law and economics and I come from the US. I'm from Michigan and I started a campaign when I was your guys' age in middle school and high school to make sure that palm oil is sustainably sourced in Girl Scout cookies. Alright, so what did you do to this campaign? How did you start it? What kind of things did you do to help? Yeah, so do you guys know who Jane Goodall is? Have you ever heard of her? Look her up. She is the United Nations Messenger of Peace and she is a renowned conservationist and she made a groundbreaking discovery that chimpanzees make and use tools. So I saw, she's from the UK, and I saw her, a video of her when I was in first grade and I decided that like Jane I was going to help save a grade 8 and I picked the orangutans. 
And so I learned that orangutan's habitat is being cleared in Southeast Asia to plant palm oil. And that palm oil is an ingredient in 50% of the products in American grocery stores. It's also widely used here. And that palm oil is in the Girl Scout cookies that I had sold since I was seven years old. And so I started, I found this out when I was 11, and it started really small in my middle school. We had a letter writing drive in my English class to companies that use palm oil. I convinced the teachers for extra credit. <laughs> so we had lots of student participation, <laughs> as you guys would, you know, that extra credit can help you out. Yeah. <laughs> um, and we had a petition, and my original plan was to boycott palm oil, because that's what I thought being an activist meant. But then I actually had a petition, and I got to meet Jane Goodall at a conference, and she didn't sign it. And that was crushing, because she was my hero. Uh -huh. But she really encouraged me to think about what sustainability meant for palm oil. And so eventually, I grew this school campaign uh, to a very public international campaign and was honored by the United Nations as a forest hero and our campaign was all over the news in the US and eventually we convinced the Girl Scouts and Kellogg which bakes the cookies and Cargill which trades the palm oil to the US and Wilmar which supplies the palm oil to the US all to adopt deforestation free policies. Okay, so what are you guys' names? Uh, Pipsy and Ellis. Nice. So what have you guys just done? So Cambridge City Council and yeah, they told us about like littering and like why it's bad and also they told us about um, how long some some types of water takes to bio. Yeah, and glass and we learned that glass never biodegrades. What year are you in, Lisa? Year 10. Year 10. So what's Year 10 doing for the Festival of Learning? Uh, year 10, we're some visitors from other schools in Cambridge and we're in, like, researching a topic. I think they two are going to present and like, have a debate, have ideas how to solve issues within that topic. Yeah. <laughs> Do you think it's important to share people's ideas with each other? Yeah, definitely. Because um, especially like when you're in the same school, it's quite likely that you'll just have the same ideas as everyone else of how to solve things. So it's good to hear what people think. Yeah. So what's the aim of them? Okay, the aim is to provide sustainable green transport uh, options for people to get to work, to get around the city during the day w with zero emission impact. Um, and um, really to also encourage uh, people out of cars, not only to stop the cars in, uh, coming to the city, but also to, to encourage them to, to, to do exercise, because so, it's an active travel solution. So what have you as a member of staff got out of the Festival of Learning today? Well, the thing for me that I think I'm really going to take away is how wonderful it is to have all these people from so many different places. We've got people from the junior school who have come up, um, but we've also got people from other schools in the area. We have external experts from industry coming in. We've even got students from Germany. And I think that's the thing I'm really going to uh, remember about today is how fantastic it is to have all these different people from so many different places all concerned and thinking about the same thing. Next, 
We have been joined by guest speaker Angus Forbes to discuss the idea of a global planet authority as a potential solution to the current climate crisis. Here's the interview. Hello and welcome. We have Angus Forbes with us today, the pioneer behind the Global Planetary Authority. So Angus, could you give us an overview of what we could expect from a world governed by the GPA and how the GPA would operate? Great question. It's lovely to be here today. Thank you. Um, Yes, going into global governance is quite um, a thought, isn't it? Um, But I think it's just the the best way of running a biosphere for, for the next 500, 1,000 years. And what's so exciting is that humanity is will, is increasingly realizing our connectivity and the capacity and the power that we yield as a, as, a, as a global citizenship. So therefore we will, I believe, use this commonality that is the desire to have a healthy planet um, to enter global governance for the first time. So we will allocate a part of our personal sovereignty in order to make this entity a reality. So there it will be sitting above the nation state. Isn't that strange? You know, telling uh, any human organizational form, a particular country, a particular corporation, uh, your local council, and you and me, what the biophysical boundaries are of the planet and that we must adhere to them. It'll have, it'll have that power of the quorum. We're giving it that power of enforcement. It'll also have the power of taxation relative to to its its job um, we will give it the mandate you can tax us you can regulate us thou shalt not kill to, in order to give us biophysical integrity you do your job you lay down the boundaries and we will yield to you we will adjust our countries adjust our corporations adjust our way of life n- care for our vulnerable necessary to live on a healthy bias, um, a health, with a healthy biosphere. And the reason why we will do that willingly and why we'll create this authority willingly is because it's our greatest intergener- intergenerational obligation. The future generations of humans must have a healthy planet on which to live. They can then be selfish. They can then be caring. They can be, mur- they can be murderers or they can be saints. They can be scientists or they can be zoologists. They can do what they want. They can plant AI in their heads. They can go on deep space missions. Whatever humanity chooses to do in the continual pursuit of developing the human state, it can do. But that must now be separate to an authority who gives us that function of utility, a healthy biosphere. We must have a healthy, pristine biosphere in the year 3020. And we have no organization capable of doing that. So we have to create it. Thank you. So you mentioned taxation. Mm. I was just wondering what other financial and economic power the GPA will hold. Yeah, that's a really good question. Um, What I have complete faith in is that if we're about to move in such numbers, one and a half to two and a half billion people, so that the whole of humanity enters global governance because we form the quorum and Mm -hmm. these are the biggest numbers ever seen just to remind you national election of india is 800 million the national elections of indonesia and the us are in second place at just 140 million voters so if we move in those types of numbers we're giving the power of taxation and power regulation to the gpa so what would it do i have complete faith that the best taxation experts 
and um, transaction fee experts would be there because humanity is going to do such an important task that they will develop the best and most fairest and, and equitable fees for us all. But my, I imagine that start off with a 3% GDP tax. So as you buy a pair of glasses or your next phone or your next um, uh, packet of cookies, you'll pay 3% more. Right. It's not too bad, is it? Right? No. 3%, no. buy something for a quid and it's a pound oh three. You know, they'll start off with that. Now that, on an $87 trillion economy, which is final goods and services, i.e. GDP, is automatically $2 trillion. And we spend 0.4%, and that would be 3%. That would be automatically a nine-fold increase in the amount of money we'd have to spend on the biosphere. Then they'd set a series of progressive taxes which tax the rich and the profligate the most. And lastly, they'd set a series of of taxes on externalities. So carbon, nitrous oxide, the nasties, which like smoking, right? We want to stop smoking, so you tax the cigarettes. And they'd do the same. And that would be a blend of taxation, which is equitable, fair. There'd be some regressive, some progressive, some manufacturing, some consumption, a whole range of transaction-based fees, which hurt the rich and the profligate the most, because if you're ripping the biosphere apart by private jet and eating you know, Wagyu burgers you know, <laughs> that are made in Japan and air freighted to you in, in Rio de Janeiro, you've got to pay more. Mm-hmm. It's only fair. Um, earlier today, you mentioned that one billion members of the global population live on below $1 a day. How much money will the GPA give to the internal boundary of the ultra-poor? That's a good question. Uh, Yes, the ecologists, our ecological leaders remind us that um, we have to, uh, in order to, you can't just put down physical, uh, 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 absolute biophysical boundaries alone in order to get a healthy biosphere. You must also care for your ultra poor in order to have a healthy biosphere. And the reason for that is that humans are incredibly resourceful. So if you are very poor, living on less than $1 a day, you do anything to survive. You will cut down a tree and produce a bag of charcoal to try and sell it. You will um, uh, divert a river. You will suck dry an aquifer. You you know, anything to survive on a day-to-day basis. And, And if we have a billion people doing that, and that unfortunately is forecast to go to 2 billion in 2050, uh, that is a, a is a force that we need to uh, remove. Besides the moral imperative of looking after a fellow human being, so uh, at the moment we spend 0.32 percent of GDP uh, that on what are called DAC contributions, direct aid contributions by the rich nations. We should be spending 0.7. That is the directive, but. Mm. Countries don't always do it. Here in Great Britain, we do um, uh, spend the whole 0.7. But I believe that 0.32 number that we have at the moment needs to go to 1.5%. It needs to be a five-fold increase. And we need to enact the biggest wealth transfer that humanity's ever done to the ultra-poor. And what's really exciting now is that field study after field study, test case after test case, says that if you want to liberate a young a a, a, um, poor person you give them money direct 
you don't actually say oh you need more education oh you need a, uh, a computer you actually give them the money and the reason is is because they have the computational power of hitting their efficiency frontier so women may say i'm going to i'm going to invest that money in birth control the man might say i need a mobile phone and the whole family needs a mobile phone so they have the best um, they know what they won't just do it on drugs and and you know and bad things they actually they always spend it on a great efficiency frontier of education energy security food security um, uh, birth control and the great thing is now is that we can direct uh, transfer the money directly to them through their phones so they can get the money on their phones they don't need to go through nefarious characters we don't need to go through agencies that take their clip we don't need to um uh we don't need to go via nefarious characters who will hold the money up at gunpoint so we can go direct to the ultra poor now thank you so if we've got the ultra poor and the ultra rich whams if you're in between yeah. what happens to those kind of in the middle of those two different boundaries yeah, isn't that that's a great question because of course we are living through a surge of middle class mm. Mm. so yeah. our middle class is basically going from as we speak from 1 billion to 4 billion right Gosh. now as defined by 10 dollars a day income yeah and that four billion want everything that you, the three of us in this room have, energy security and food security, a clean bathroom and maybe an electric toothbrush. And they're gonna get it. Um, I think that that desire to better oneself is a constant. Um, and it can be argued rationally. You can't impose biophysical boundaries. They'll be too strenuous and they'll stop part of those maybe 500 million maybe a billion people reaching middle class you'll stop them because there'll be too many taxes in the way and you'll you'll stop economic growth with biophysical boundaries in the short term and i think that's true but it's not an argument for us not going to gpa because because it because it um doesn't address two things first of all we must have a healthy biosphere full stop it's preconditional for everything secondly i would never underestimate our ability to adapt um, people will adapt and they will thrive. Biophysical boundaries in the short term will feel like they're restrictive. But in fact, they're going to be incredibly liberating. And I believe that we will then grow faster economically after putting in universal biophysical boundaries because we're going to rebuild our human-made economy at a lower level of industrial metabolism. So it's a bit like the second, after the Second World War, we had to rebuild the economy quickly in the 50s, 60s and 70s because everything was destroyed. Mm. Now we're going to have to rebuild it, but at ultra light. So that's going to actually speed up economic growth. And that will mean that the middle classes reach their goals in plenty of time. Uh, you said that the most important thing um, that we should care about is a healthy biosphere. Do you actually think that um, we are too late to create a healthy biosphere again has the damage already been done some specialists think so um, they think that at 415 parts per million that we've unleashed uh, a cycle uh, of global warming that we can't stop um, uh, some people think that some specialists think that as we reduce plant species we know that plants need each other to survive other they need other plants they share pollination they share disease fighting together um, 
and therefore we are now into a epoch that will never look like the Holocene again and unfortunately this this it's like filling a washing machine with too many clothes on the spin cycle the whole thing starts to shake and wander down the corridor you know we're into a different time now maybe we're into biophysical hell but I think that that is a consideration which doesn't affect our trajectory of what we must do. We have to lighten our cumulative effort impact upon the biosphere and then let's see. So, you know, don't make it as a defeatist argument. Say no, well, let's go to ultralight immediately and then see. Mother Nature has shown extraordinary capacity to restore and rebalance. Mm -hmm. So let's get out of her way quickly and then let her see what she's going to do with us. But let's not be defeatist and let's just go pedal to the, you know, uh, foot to the pedal and pedal to the metal and just drive ourselves to zero rainforest, 600 parts per million, zero fish in the oceans, zero topsoil, just to be in biophysical hell for the sake of it. Let's do the U-turn and let's see what happens to us. That's really inspiring. Thank you so much. Thank you, Angus Forbes. My pleasure. Finally, we spoke to Miss Kelleher, the Principal of Foundation, about the importance of this festival and the awareness it can raise. Take a listen. Now, we have the privilege of talking to Miss Kelleher about how the day has gone so far. Well, it's uh, not far off lunchtime, where we're, we're all going to be served with uh, vegetarian and vegan food. Right. Uh, seems appropriate on a day all around sustainability. I think so far it's going really, really well because the students are very engaged. There's a whole range of different activities. Um, and there's also quite a festival feel around the day. So I'm personally very pleased so far. Okay. And what is the main thing you want this day to achieve? Like, what's your main goal? I think my main goal, um, first and foremost, I want it to be a day where the schools across the foundation are actually joined together around a purpose of learning that is about sustainability because that is quite an exceptional thing to be able to do in a school usually you have curriculum to deliver and you will deliver that curriculum come what may but we have the most amazing teachers in the school and they absolutely wanted us to do something that would bring us together as a community but I think more to the point I want this to be a, a sort of leading on to another stage of, of, of engagement with the whole issue around sustainability which is the frankly you know the biggest challenge facing the younger generation going forward Definitely. On that note, was it easy to choose the theme for this year's Festival of Learning, considering current events? Well, actually, um, we're, we're building on last year, because last year we were looking at the United Nations Sustainability mm. Goals. Um, and really, I, th I think I'm very keen that young people at the school are looking beyond the, the sort of parochial needs of the school, you know, looking right. out globally. So it seemed a logical next step. But of course, what has happened this year with Greta Thunberg, etc. It's it's the logical course of travel, I think. And it's where we go next as a, as a foundation school within Cambridge and working with other schools, potentially. Absolutely. What do you think you personally will take away from the experience today? Already, what I find um, actually quite inspiring is overhearing snippets of conversations between the students you know, and, and 
hearing from them that the curiosity and the belief that actually we can make a difference um, and that is so important because there is something at the moment called climate anxiety. I don't know if you've come across it, yeah. but it's, it's a thing. Um, and listening to Angus Forbes talking about the GPA this morning and why he thought it was necessary to have a global planet authority, I looked at that and thought, my God, that looks quite scary. But it needn't be because all he was demonstrating is this is what would happen if we don't change our behaviours. We can still change our behaviours. And I'm hearing today... We've got a lot of young students who are up for changing their, you know, their own behaviours, which is great. Well, you mentioned Angus Forbes and his idea for a global planetary authority. How do you think the existence of the GPA would help create a more sustainable world? I know Angus is of the view, um, and he made this point very clearly in his speech, that the fundamental problem we have is unlike in a school, as he said, in a school, you have your head teacher and you have your your carrots and your sticks. In the the world, there is nobody in charge. Mm. So why not think about a different way of governing the world? Um, I don't know where that idea will lead, but if nothing else, I think if it opens the minds of our young people to understanding that decision-making has to be globally thought through and cannot be done in isolation i think that'd be a really really good outcome okay um it's interesting how the gpa would actually fit into the geopolitics of Mm. today's climate um how do you think it would actually work as in would do you think every single country would unanimously agree to this no and that's the problem I think what Angus is challenging us to think about is because every single country has its own national interest to the fore. I think they would struggle with this. If I may, as a former history teacher, draw an analogy, in the medieval period, uh, kings of England didn't like the Pope in Rome interfering. Okay. You know, so uh, it, it, it's, it's, a, it's a really difficult concept. But I think conceptually, I understand why Angus is making the point. Mm-hmm. We've got to work, we've really got to work together. Um, and I have to say, in, in fairness to this country, I think they, this country has made significant strides with carbon emissions, etc. So, and I, I think recently, didn't we have most of our energy was being um, provided by renewable sources of energy rather than yes. fossil fuels? So, I think we, we are we are certainly working as a country in that direction. It's how we influence other countries to do that as well. Um, in what ways would you advise the young people of Cambridge and of the world to contribute to the fight against global warming? Are there any particular steps you would encourage us to take? I think you need to learn about the issues, because unless you understand the issues, you will not understand what the solutions are. Uh, and all our learners today across the foundation and the, the schools, Bassingbourne, Swavesy and North Cambridge Academy are here as well, and our German exchange partners, they're all learning about different aspects of this, this huge, huge um, issue. Um, but if we learn about it, then you can be, if you learn about it, then you can be these positive, creative, innovative change makers that we need you to be. Uh, and that really has to be, for me, educational outcome for us. Um, and lastly, do you think the future is encouraging? Do you think that this day will end on an optimistic note for the future of our climate and our environment? I think we will end on an optimistic note because uh, if the future is in the hands of our young people, I think we're in a very good place. Thank you, Miss Kelleher. Thank you. You're very welcome.
Thanks for listening to the podcast. I would like to thank James and Olivia for co-producing this programme and all the student reporters for making this possible. If you'd like to find out more about the Festival of Learning, go to stephenpurse.com. For more information on Angus Forbes and the GPA, go to votegpa.com. Thank you.